You are listening to the Kensington Church Podcast, recorded live in Michigan. To learn more about Kensington, visit kensingtonchurch.org. Do you know anything about church planting, which if you don't, it's okay. It's really hard. (laughs) It's a hard slug, and people come up with plans and ideas, but then life happens in such a way, and you have to adjust. You have to, you know, change your ideas, which is something that all of us have to do in life. I'm reminded a couple of the instances in my life that were a little bit significant, but me and April had plans, and then our plans kind of changed. So for those of you that don't know, my wife is Canadian. Um, She's not from this country, so when we were married, we had to file immigration paperwork. And as we filed that paperwork, the government gave us a time frame where they said it would be done by, so we set our wedding date quite a bit after that so that we wouldn't run into problems. But there were problems, and we ended up changing our wedding date three times from the early summer to the late fall, we had to change a venue because things didn't just go the way they had, we had planned to, which in the moment seemed like a big deal, but I would say now, pretty inconsequential. Another time where I had to change some plans, I was expecting child number four to come in my life. Can we throw that picture up on the screen? And this looks a lot like what I saw in the doctor's office. Now, a lot of you obviously don't know what that is, but there's, there's two in there. And I can remember when I saw this picture, I thought to myself, well, there's only one, one gap, but there's two things in there. I wonder if that means what I think it means. And then quickly my wife and the nurse doing the ultrasound tech squealed. And I was like, yeah, I guess that means exactly what it, I thought it means, right? And quickly we went from three children to five children, which was a little bit outside of our plan. And, and those were great things where life changed. But I also remember times where it was difficult. I remember another time where my wife was pregnant and she started to be sick in our house and we actually had a pretty graphic miscarriage in our home. Another instance where my mom called at 12.30 night, pretty late, and she said, Adam, the doctor or the, e- the ambulance has been here for 45 minutes working on your dad and it doesn't look good. Right? All of us have instances where life changed in a certain way where some of them were minor and some of them were more significant. And as that connects to church, it makes us wonder and ask this question about what it is that God is and is he somebody that is worthy of us kind of placing our trust in him, right? This big ultimate question of can we trust God? I know a lot of the stories, I've heard these things in the Bible and people are always talking about God's love and his trust, but the way I experience life just kind of hits differently and I'm not sure because of what I've been a part of and what has happened to me if God is necessarily somebody who's trustworthy. I mean, I know a lot of you have family member that got a diagnosis that uh, you prayed hard for. Maybe you're even a believer and you fasted and God didn't act in the way that you'd hoped he would. Or maybe some of you have something that's burdensome to you. There's like a way that you were created, something you don't want, but you feel this way deeply and you have asked God to take it away and he hasn't. Or maybe you thought you were going to what would have been this job that would have been a very certain way and because of whatever reason, it's not gone the way that you'd hoped it would. Somebody has treated you poorly or there was a cutback and because of it, the place that you thought, maybe even God told you to go, ended in a manner that you didn't think it should have. And all of this leads to a dynamic that all of us, I don't care who you are, I don't care if you're a biblical character or somebody who exists here and now have asked this question. Is God someone we can trust? Can I trust God? Well, just know that this has been a question that all of us have been asking. In the Christmas story, which we romanticize, for good reason, have great feelings about those characters, we're asking the same question. So today, what we're gonna do is look at two couples, but especially focus in on two women, two key components in this Christmas story, and see where they might have asked God this question and what their response was because of it. 
Before we do that, I wanna take a moment and pray, then we're gonna receive our offering and we'll jump into the text. Father, thank you um, for the way you work. I kinda know where I'm gonna land on this message, which is exciting to me, Um, but I also wanna press into the reality that all of us feel this. I just want people to hear it's okay to feel this. There are times where this will happen, but I believe, as we will see today through these four characters, but especially the women in this story, that there is something that we can learn and take from them that will help us in our lives. As we press into this, I pray that you would speak to us, and I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So our ushers are gonna come down forward. They're gonna pass these little bags as we receive the offering. Let me first say, if you're a guest, you're new here, we don't want you to feel any obligation like you need to give. You can take that bag and pass it on to your neighbor. I know some of you will, so I wanna say thank you in advance. And if you'd love to give in a different method, we have an app, we have a website, um, there's boxes in the back, any of those. We are incredibly thankful because like you saw in that video and all of the ones proceeding up to this, the power of this church, the jet fuel that makes this place run is from all of us coming together and bringing what we have in order to serve a greater purpose. So thank you for what it is that you do. While I'm here, I wanna highlight one additional little thing that's coming up for next week um, that we've been able to do because of your generosity. We have a building, and if you are a guest and you would like to meet some of the staff or if you have questions about our church, directly after the 11 p.m. service for about 45 minutes, me and some of our staff are gonna come together. We're just gonna talk to you a little bit about our church. It's not gonna be long. The whole thing we think will be about 45 minutes. We would love to have you come. If you have questions, we will give you an opportunity to ask them. But if you would like to come to this service, you could go grab brunch, come back, or come to the 11 right after. We would love to have you there with us as well. So please, if you are new and you're interested, we'd love to share some time with you there. So, all right, let's go back to these two couples I wanna focus in on today. So we got Mary and Joseph, Jesus' mother, and then Zachariah and Elizabeth, the, mother's, uh, the mother and father of John the Baptist, who last week is what Betty focused in on. And this dynamic that God actually called them into some pretty grand plans in their life. And if I know people know Mary and Joseph, a little bit more mother of Jesus, if you weren't here last week, um, Elizabeth and Zachariah are the parents of a guy named John, who would go on to be John the Baptist. We believe he was Jesus' cousin, and these two individuals, as we will see, were very close. But John had a calling to make Jesus known as an adult when Jesus was coming into his story and actually coming on the scene. But the way these things started out actually was pretty difficult. What's fascinating about it is the way that Mary and Elizabeth are able to respond. But let me give you a little context first, and I know many of you are aware of this. So the Jewish nation is actually in a really bad spot in this moment. They haven't followed the calling that God laid on their nation. Because of it, his supernatural protection left them because he would not support them while they were oppressors of other nations. And because of that, they are now under the thumb of the Roman government and their occupying force is intense. They were taxed incredibly heavily. They had to follow obscure laws. They had to submit in really hard and difficult ways. And the reality is these four couples we are talking about, if the whole nation had lived in the manner that they had, the Jewish state probably would not be in the circumstances and the mess that they are now. See, in the Old Testament, God had a covenant with the nation, and he said, if you follow my laws, and it wasn't about being obedient, it was about showing the world who he was, he would protect them so that they could demonstrate what his love was like. But because the majority did not follow that, everyone ended up suffering. And I think this speaks to something that a lot of us feel. We feel that if we're following God in a certain way, whatever that means for you personally, that because of that, some of the hardships, some of the negative things shouldn't or won't happen to us in our lives. 
And I wonder if Mary and Elizabeth were thinking of any of those things in this moment, right? Like, like life's hard for them because of Rome, but maybe because we're already being oppressed, like we can follow God and that'll be the negative that we only have to deal with. Like he's gonna give us a pass on the other side of things because of the way that we have been following him. But if you look into the text, that is not what happened. And I just wanna practically talk about what being a mother of John or Jesus meant for these two couples. First, let's start with Zachary. Zachariah and Elizabeth, John's parents. So as Betty said last week, they got pregnant very old in life. They couldn't get pregnant. They were struggling with infertility, apparently. And it was only when Elizabeth was probably 70 or 80 years old that she became pregnant. And I'm sure she had an initial reaction of one that was pretty excited. But don't believe that fear didn't come along in that as well. I'm a very practical person, and I'm wondering what would happen in our lives if April and I became pregnant at 70 or 80, and after I went through a morning of weeping, mourning, and fasting, um, hopefully I would be excited about it, but then I would think about the practical realities. You're 70 years old. What happens in a couple of years when you're gone? Who's gonna raise this boy? Who's gonna love him the way that you would? Who's gonna care for him? Like, their society was far different than ours was in such a way. Like, what's gonna happen when both parents are gone? For Zachariah, is he gonna be able to play, teach, and lead this boy in what he's gonna need to? Like, there were a lot of what-ifs, ways that they were gonna have to lean into trusting God that many of us don't have to deal with because of how this situation has unfolded. Mary and Joseph, let's talk about her. What are the two most significant moments in the majority of a young woman's life? Does anybody have an idea? When you get married and when you have a child, maybe even especially your first child, do you know that Mary missed out in the most significant way those moments that should have been grand and great for her and it wasn't her fault? In that culture, having a baby out of wedlock was a Not a death sentence, but pretty close to it in some regards for the way people would receive you. And Mary did nothing wrong. She was willing to follow what it was that God called her into because she supernaturally became pregnant. But I'm sure that story went really well when she was sharing it with other people. And because of it, her wedding day and the birth of her first child were moments that she didn't get to celebrate, but she probably had to hide because of the way she would have been received from the people around them. You see, they had experience that they had hoped would have gone a certain direction, just like you and I do. But as fascinating as the way that they responded, which we'll get to in a moment, but I remember a moment where this happened in my life. Um, I grew up in a small town Love sports. My mom and dad both played sports in college. So I was a decent athlete growing up. I was just really small, which always was an inhibitor for me being successful. But in Little League, when you were nine years old, like the Little League you see on TV, we had two types of teams. They called it the majors and the minors. And the majority of kids, especially when they're younger, would go to the minors because it was more developmental. Well, my dad played college baseball, so I had learned a bit, and I actually made the major side of things. But as a nine-year-old, I knew I was not one of the best nine players on the team team, had no intention that I would start and play a lot. However, in my very first Little League game, I can remember sitting in a dugout in Elkland, Pennsylvania, and I heard my name read in the starting lineup. (laughs) Right? Like, I was so excited, and I'm pumped, and I go out for that first inning. But what I also was aware of but didn't think that would happen, and then there was rules about how much somebody had to play, and you only had to play six defensive outs, and then you could come out of the game. Well, guess what happened directly after the top of the first inning? I came out of the game. 
You see, I didn't expect that this would go a certain way, but then that was given to me. It was like a carrot in front of me, and then after it was pulled away, I was pretty emotional. I know that's a big shocker for all of you, <laughs> right? But I was, I had tears, I was upset because my plans, especially because I didn't even think this would happen, had gone in a direction where I didn't think they would. Now that's a silly example, but what about the first time I was a pastor and that job didn't go the way I thought it would? Where I was led and treated in a way that I would not say maybe was the best. Like, what about that? And it was really hard for my family, even for April. We were there, and, and she actually received Georgia better than I did in some ways. But then it was go back to New York, do part-time work while you're in full-time school, which meant that Adam and April and their family are going to live with their mom. <laughs> Sign me up, Right? Like, that's the type of environment I want to be in. And the reason I share those two stories with you, I want you to understand that's where these two couples are. In some regard, these moments that should have been great for them, especially because they've done nothing to receive the negative side of things, were different than they had initially thought they were. I'm reading a book by a guy named Henry Cloud. He is a doctor. He's a a psychologist, maybe a psychiatrist, incredibly smart, uh, but he can write things down in a way that's just earth-shattering, but very simple and practical. He's written a bunch of books. I would encourage you, if you see it, read anything that he has written. But right now I'm reading one called Trust. And in this book that he calls Trust, he talks about how in society we all have to trust each other. Like it literally cannot function unless we can trust people. And of course, there's different levels of people that we trust. Like I trust somebody's not gonna swerve across the line hit me, but there's a different level of trust I won't give to that person. And if we don't have trust as a society, we cannot function. He says, even in our brains, there is scientific evidence that shows when we walk into a scenario, our brain scans the situation and lets us know how it is that we need to respond, right? Do, do we need to fight? Does flight come up? Is it reserved? Is it something that we can relax in? We don't know this is happening, but constantly in our life, we are going through moments like this. He even says, like, if you have somebody that hasn't proven it and they're saying, just trust me, like, your siren should be going off inside. Like, trust should definitely be something we give, but levels in increments that we should verify, right? So the basic question, though, that I believe that we ask is when somebody says, trust me, we want to know if it's safe. We want to know if it's safe to trust that person. And the really hard reality as it relates to us and our relationship with God is we're not always going to be called into a state where, yes, we know he loves us and he is trusting, but what he is asking us to do is actually safe talk about Mary and Elizabeth for a moment. God calls them into these pregnancies, both supernatural in some context. And let's talk about Elizabeth. She was 70 or if not 80 years old. Do you know how dangerous pregnancy was for a 20-year-old back then? I mean, I teased my wife. She's going to hit me after this, and it will be deserved. Our last, uh, she knows what I'm going to say. It was technically our last birth was a geriatric pregnancy <laughs> because of how old we were. I'm older than her. So, but like, this is a super geriatric pregnancy. No hospital, no time. Like, there were probably moments where Elizabeth was like, this literally could cost me my life. Then who's gonna care for this boy? What about Mary? See, in their culture, it wasn't just shame 
because you had a baby out of wedlock. Mary was betrothed to Joseph, and in their culture, with their laws, if you were a woman that had an affair and that's how you got pregnant, there could be really bad implications. One of them, Joseph probably could have went to the town, got a riot up and going, and had Mary stoned. Like, these two women literally went into situations where it just wasn't gonna be uncomfortable. It was unsafe for them in what it was that God was calling them to do. You see, there's this moment in their life where they're realizing what God's plans for them is not safe. And I guarantee you, there were times where it was scary, it was fearful, and that idea sunk down into them. And I actually even believe, like, the devil wasn't going to stand by and just allow that to go by unchecked. He pressed into that. He pushed in. He said, yeah, unsafe. This is, and takes them all through this journey where he is manipulating and trying to get them to step outside of this calling, this magnificent, wonderful thing that God wanted them to do because they weren't in a position where the calling actually meant they were safe. Last week, Betty Dickinson was here and she talked about the Narnia series. Um, have any of you ever seen some of the Narnia movies? Okay, if you haven't watched The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it's actually a fantastic movie. And what I love about Narnia is not just that the plot lines are great and the characters are well-developed, but it actually connects to the Christian message, and not super overtly. So in the stories, C.S. Lewis wrote about this magical land, Narnia, that lives adjacent to our world. And these four children, siblings, actually find their way through a wardrobe into this magical land. But as they enter the land, as Betty said, it's winter, which represents the evil that the world is in under the occupying force that is the White Witch. Now, there's a king of Narnia who's gone away. And his name is Aslan. He's a representation of Jesus and what he has done for us. And as they go, the magical animals, in this case the beavers, are telling the children about this lion and how one day he's going to come back and he's going to set everything right. To which Susan, one of the girls, responds, that's amazing. Wait, he's not a man, he's a lion. We know what lions are like because of our culture. So she asks the question that every single one of us would have asked. Is he safe? My favorite, one of my favorite lines in the whole series, the beaver says, he's not safe, but he's good. You see, there's a goodness to him, and while being around him won't necessarily be something that is safe, but if you follow him, if you trust him, if you understand the love that he has for you, you will be in a place while though following him won't necessarily be safe because of his goodness and the way that he loves you, you will trust him. You see, that's why Mary and Joseph and Zechariah and Elizabeth, but especially the two women, were able to press into this calling. See, the Bible actually doesn't tell us this, but I actually find something fascinating about it is how these two women were able to respond in the middle of a calling, a situation that wasn't just uncomfortable, but that literally could actually cost them their life. And the reason I know they were excited about it is because the Bible lets us in to what happens. First, let's read what Elizabeth says after she finds out some of this. Luke chapter 1, 23 through 25 says this. When Zechariah's week of service in working in the temple was over, he returned home. Soon afterward, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant, and she went into seclusion for five months. But check out verse 25. How kind the Lord is, she exclaimed, as he has taken away my disgrace of having no children. How about Mary? 
Actually, after this happens pretty quickly, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and starts to share with her what it is that is a moment is about to happen. And Mary runs to Elizabeth because they're family and they want to share the news. And as it happens, Mary launches into this thing we call Mary's Magnificat. And this is the first few verses of what she says. Luke 1, 46 and 47 says, Mary responded, oh, how my soul praises the Lord, how my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. You see, these ladies are excited, and what is interesting about it for these women is while they were excited, they actually didn't know how this would end up. Like, our bend is to think that maybe God spoke in such a way where all of their concerns were alleviated, that he showed them the full map and can see where every step was going, but that's actually practically not how it happened. I think what God gave them was enough to know what they needed for next. And the next step might have even been looking like they could have been walking off of a proverbial ledge. But for Mary and Elizabeth, they were both able to respond in this way, which I think begs the question that I want to know that we all should know. How could they be put in circumstances like this and find themselves able to respond the way that they have? And I think the answer is very simple. Let me tell you what it is, and then I'll tell you why I think this. I believe these women had a relationship with God, right? Because this is before Jesus ever comes on the scene, but they pressed in. They knew some of the words of their Bible. See, they had a Bible too. It was the Old Testament about this part, and they'd known the truth about a Messiah coming. They knew the character of God, not because they'd read about it, because they had pursued him in a relationship. And as they pursued him, they understood that God loved them and could be trusted. And because those adjectives described who he was, even in a moment where a calling in their life led them into something difficult, they were able to stick with it because of the character of God proceeding in these moments. Two weeks ago, I was up here and I said, I've had a lot of people ask me the question, well, how did people get saved, if you will, in the Old Testament, right? Because Jesus wasn't around and on the scene. And I said, it's the exact same way we get saved now. It's a belief and a trust in God, right? And the way that we grow in our relationship with Jesus in the same way is the same now as it was before he ever came on the scene. We press in with God, and as we press in with him in a relationship partnership dynamic, he begins to reveal more of his character to us. And as it, we don't just get to know about him. We get to know him as a person. A lot of you would have a certain amount of trust for somebody, but as you know them and not just hear about the things they've done, the depth that you would be willing to receive that and understand and and do something that seems out of step and out of line is greater, not because you hear about them, but because you know them. That's what this relationship is, and that's what Mary and Elizabeth had found. And I think there is something that they came to understand about how God works that was pivotal in not only this, but in their development, especially for Mary one day, as she would look at Jesus hanging on a cross. And it was this. Sometimes when it feels like everything is falling apart, God is actually bringing everything together. Let me say that one more time. Sometimes when it feels like everything is falling apart, God is actually bringing everything together. Such a great amen statement, right? Amen. Praise the Lord. You know what also it is? It's really hard. 
Can I tell you I love and hate that statement all in the same breath? Like I'm a pastor, I'm probably not supposed to say things like that. And I've, I've understood as I've gone further with Jesus, like I've gotten better at this, but there's moments in my life where it's hard. And because it's hard, there's this emotion that we develop of fear, right? And fear is real and it's challenging and there are good reasons for us to feel that in life. But here's the thing, what I'm just coming to learn, sometimes when life is not going according to our plan, it's actually going according to his, right? And if I can find myself in a position where I will step back and allow myself to leave and follow the roadmap, even when I can't see what's laid out in front of me, but I'm connected, I'm close, I'm walking with Jesus, he's gonna get me where I need to be. Something that's pivotal in my life that God is teaching me still but really show me in the past two but especially year is as I follow him for whatever it is, he always gets me what I need, even if it comes in the last moment. If we put in the work, if we do our part and we're diligent and we're not lazy because sometimes we're lazy and because of that laziness we, not get, we might not get what we need. But if we follow him, even times where we mess up, make mistakes, aren't in here as much as we should be but we pursue him. And when we find that we aren't doing that, we reconnect with him. He always, every single time has gotten me what I needed. And there is something he wants to develop inside of us in this process. A guy named Paul, who is a follower of Jesus. A lot of you know who he is. For those of you that don't, he used to be somebody that hated Jesus. He was one of those religious leaders and Pharisees, hated everything Jesus stood for, didn't think he was God, made his life about pursuing Jesus' followers to kill him. But he met Jesus in this miraculous conversion. And then decades later, he wrote about what he had come to find in this way of pursuing Jesus in this way. This is what he writes in a letter to a church in Rome. In the middle of these situations, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. For we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. Why? Because we know how deeply God loves us. Listen, our God is not safe. I will tell you that from the start. But you know what he is? He is good. He is good and there is something that he wants to develop inside of you and inside of me that can actually help us when we find ourselves in a position maybe like what Mary and Elizabeth and by connection Joseph and Zachariah are in. And I think this statement is just kind of lays that out. So I wanna share it with you. See, in his goodness, and let's start there. In his goodness, God will allow hardships to happen to us to develop something greater inside of us. God will allow hardships, challenges, trials, circumstances that we don't want to be in because he wants to develop something greater, something stronger, something mightier inside of all of us. Listen to me. There is this wonderful call that's above anything any of us can do on our own, rested on each and every one of us. There's a, a, a scripture in the Old Testament that talks about that we were knitted together by God in our mother's womb. And I think part of that knitting together is him saying, I've got a plan, I've got a journey, I've got something unique and special and each of one of us is calibrated to do this thing in a way that nobody else can. But in order to find that in its fullness, we are going to go through moments in a broken world that are hard. 
And in that hardship, if we will press in and we will lean into Jesus into a new way, something will happen inside of us that releases joy and faithfulness and fruit that you didn't think was possible, but God wants to do in our lives. And all of this is possible because of the way that he loves us. There's four gospel accounts in the New Testament, very first four books of It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're either disciples or friends of the disciples that wrote down what Jesus did while he was on earth. My favorite one is John. I think John and I are probably a bit alike, and I love the way he's practical but allegorical in some ways too. And John, if you know anything about him, changed in such a dramatic way from the first time he met Jesus. I use this story a lot because it it makes the point. Uh, There's a moment where John's following Jesus and his theology of how people should be treated is honestly pretty jacked up. There's this point where there's a group of people called the Samaritans, which John would have culturally hated, racist towards this group of people that are different than he was. But these these, Jews and the Samaritans interacted a lot because they were close in proximity in where they lived. And there's one instance where some of the Samaritans see the Jews and they hated them in the same way. And they, they either say some slander towards Jesus, they might have even thrown something at him, and at this point, John knows who Jesus is in some way, and him and his brother get this, uh, Jesus gives them a nickname, he calls them the sons of thunder, which really wasn't a compliment, right? So John looks at Jesus, and he's like, hey, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume these idiots? And it's like, I wonder if Jesus was like, what are you doing, right? So that's who John was, but then John was with Jesus for three years, and Jesus left, and John started to pursue him more. He didn't just know about him. He, he was walking with him, and he learned more about him, and as that happened, it changed the character of who John was to the point where not only could he press in the way Mary and the way Elizabeth did, this guy had wisdom and discernment that could only come from God. You see, God had a calling on John's life to be one of the people that would write down the words that would be revealed to us, and because John was willing to step into unsafe situations because he trusted God. There's so much goodness that we receive that helps us in our lives. So he wrote the gospel, the fourth gospel of John, but he also later on in life wrote some letters to a church or a set of churches that was struggling. We have them now in our Bible. They're called 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Let me give you a little context. John is older. He's probably 60s, 70s, 80s, not sure, but it's four, five, six decades later. And the church, or the group of churches in Ephesus have been struggling because they've gone through a split because some of the people didn't think Jesus was God. So John writes them a letter, and he starts it out by confirming who Jesus was because he says, guys, I was there. I saw it. I saw how it happened. I saw the miraculous moments. I saw him take bread and feed thousands and thousands of people. I saw him get baptized and God come out from the clouds and speak and say, this is my son. Listen to him. Follow him. I saw him die on a cross. And then I saw him come back three days later. But John's goal wasn't just to tell them the things that Jesus did. He wanted to show them the character of who he was and the way that he loved them, the way God loved them. And I think John knew something that we know too. Love's a finicky word. Like we say love and we can mean lots of different things and there's relationships in our lives that should have had a certain love dynamic that we haven't got to experience because the brokenness of this world pressed into those relationships and it affected us in a way that God never had wanted, never had hoped and it shouldn't have. But in this letter, John talks about the love that God has for us and in it how we are treated and what he thinks of it. I want to read to you one and a half verses, I think, that he said. Oh, just one. 1 John 4, 18, John says this. There is no fear 
in love, in God's kind of love, because perfect love drives out fear. Fear has to do with punishment, and the one who fears is not made perfect in love. There's a version of the Bible that we don't read as much anymore. It's called the King James Version. We don't read it because it was in the first translation into English. So it's got a lot of hastif and other things in it that are hard to understand. But that version says something that's so pertinent and I think speaks to the type of love that God has for us that I want to share. It says this. It says, this perfect love casts out fear. Why? Because fear has torment. See, fear comes in a way, and I think we would all acknowledge this. When we're fearful, there's a torment that happens inside of us. There's an anxiousness, there's a fear, there's something that we can't get outside of us because of the circumstances. But what John came to understand, what Mary came to understand, what Elizabeth came to understand is there is a way that God, a way that Jesus wants to love us. And when we start to receive that love, our fear will start to subside because when we are loved by the king who cares about us, who loves us, and who is trustworthy, it will start to drive out because our circumstances aren't going to be the thing that will dictate the way that we feel in these moments. It's a perfect love that says, I know you're scared. I know that it's hard, but you know the character of God is such that he is good. He's good in the best kind of way, the best kind of way we could all understand and would say is good for us. It's like goodness in the way that our vegetables are good for us. We might not always want it, but it's the best kind of love. And when you understand, when you wrap your mind around this type of goodness, you will realize that he loves you. And when somebody loves you like that and is good, even when they put you in a place, in a situation that is unsafe, you will trust them. And that trust will move in a way that that fear that every single one of us feel will be cast out. Like I have felt this in my life. I had the fortunate, pl- uh, fortunate pleasure of, of doing a funeral this weekend and when I went over to the person before they had passed, there was that spirit of fear. And this is how God works because people have done this for me too. Sometimes we need a companion or a friend to remind us because the, the end of life brings fear for good reason. Even if we trust Jesus, it's like, what is next? And there was an opportunity where we got to see that perfect love cast out the fear of the unknown to the person who's getting ready to meet Jesus. This is what he wants to do. And as we come to know him and as we understand him, this is what he wants to do in our life. You know what I love about Christmas and Easter? Christmas, Satan starts sweating. He starts sweating because the king has come. The Messiah that that Old Testament had promised is finally on the scene. So he's rallying his troops, probably in a way like he never has before, in order to combat it. And then the cross happens and he thinks he's won. He thinks that. The disciples think that. All of the followers of Jesus think that. But what they didn't fully understand until after the fact is when it seemed like everything was falling apart, which I'm sure is Jesus is hanging on the cross, is the emotion people felt. God was actually bringing his plan together. I don't know where you are. I don't know the space and the place that you find yourself in, but this is what I know. If you will lean in and you will trust God, He will be in your life in such a way that what they came to know is something that you will come to know as well. I also wanna acknowledge how hard it is in these moments. And I would 
you can go Google scriptures on trust and you will find dozens and dozens of them that speak to you. But I wanna share with you the one that I lean into when life is hard, when I need help trusting. It comes from Proverbs chapter three, verses five and six. I really don't need this because I've prayed it so much, I've memorized it says this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Don't lean on what you know. Acknowledge him in everything you do and he will direct your path. God is good, he is kind, and he is just. And because of these things, even when life hits in a certain way, we will be able to find what it is that we need. Brian was here September 11th, right, doing that launch in, and this whole time leading up to Christmas, we're in the book of Luke, and we're only talking about knowing the one. This is Jesus, this is God. The New Testament says that Jesus came and he is the full picture of the invisible God. You wanna know what God thinks about you? Look at Jesus, because they're the same. And in this, he says, this is the way that I love all of you. And in that love, I think God's gonna ask us to do some uncomfortable things. And my time is gone by five minutes, so I gotta say this really quick, right? My challenge to you is, what is God asking you to do? I know it's hard, I know it's gonna be difficult, I know it's gonna stretch you, but as you do it, you will lean into something greater and more magnificent for you, and it's gonna be hard, and there's moments you're gonna be fearful, and you're gonna need to pray out those scripture verses, you're gonna have to press into God, but as you do that, you will learn more who he is, you will learn more of his character, more of his goodness, which will enable you to trust him, even when things aren't safe. And I think when our church does that, there's gonna be some opportunities for his to press into. I have three goals for our campus. The first is leaders to step up, to step up to help lead in Bible studies or, or walk with people who aren't as far down on the journey. And I think God's calling you, some of you, into that. I think some of you he's calling in to take a first step. Listen, we all have different moments on the journey. My first moment was helping set up and tear down chairs. And because I did that, following Jesus, we're in a different place. And so many people find that because they were willing to take the first step. Some of you, God's asking you to take the step of contributing financially, which really scares you. But if you press in and he is leading you that way, he will come through. He will get you what you need, even if it's in the last moment. I'm telling you, this is our God. This is who he is. This is who we proclaim. And this is how he loves us in such a way that we can trust him and that we can know that he is good, even when he is unsafe. My hope and prayer is this Christmas season, whether you read that book Betty has give, gave us last week or press in with your Bible praying, that you will understand this is the God we love, this is the God we serve, and this is what he wants to do in your life. You've been listening to the Kensington Church Podcast. If you've enjoyed this recording, check back weekly for new content. You can find Kensington on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and of course, at kensingtonchurch.org.